You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone, president of Strong Towns. Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. It's really cool to be here with you. This is just me today, and I'm, I'm going to explain what's going on. Um, <laughs> but I want to just say welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I, I, I'm just astounded by the number of people who tell me, uh, as, you know, as I go around the country and meet people. Uh, they will say that they listen to the podcast. And I, I really have no, I've got pretty good statistics on the blog, um, but the podcast comes right off of our blog site. And there really is no good way for me to know exactly how many people are downloading. I, I know other podcasts use like podcast service sites uh, that keep really good statistics on how many times things are downloaded. I, I have no clue. Uh, there were a long time when I was telling myself that there's like three people listening and I realized that there's a lot more than that. Um, that's really humbling. Uh, that's really crazy. And, uh, I'm just happy that you're here. Thank you. Uh, one of the funnier things that happens to me, um, is I'll run into people and they'll say one of two things. They'll say, wow, you look like your photo. Uh, or they'll say, oh my gosh, you sound just like you. And, uh, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> um, this is, uh, I'm going to do this one solo this week. It's actually Wednesday night. I try to put out the podcast, uh, every week on Thursday mornings. And, uh, now that I've got Jim, uh, my boss here helping me out, uh, we, we, this whole podcasting thing has gotten a, a little bit, I won't say a little bit easier, but we essentially tried to up our game a little bit. Jim does the scheduling and lines up uh, people. We we chat. I keep a list of people I'd like to have on the podcast, topics I would like to do. And Jim does yeoman's job of lining up, you know, lining up people with my schedule and making sure that we're ready to do the podcast. All I have to do is prep, which, you know, is still a, a lot of work, but it's not all the work of lining things up, which has meant I can be a little bit more on top of things, a little bit regular, have better guests, and be better prepared, which has been really nice. The problem is, when uh, when we went to Memphis about a month ago, uh, Grayson Johnson, and I love you, Grayson, if you're listening right now, uh, Grayson Johnson asked me if I could bring some chords, uh, because we weren't really sure exactly what we were going to need there in Memphis to do all the audio recording, and she just asked me, you know, just have your gear, your extra stuff so that if we need something, uh, you know, we'll have it. And I had one like special cord that uh, I don't even know like the size of it, but basically it was like a headphone jack out and then like a, you know, professional large, larger jack into the uh, mixer. It was like a one eighth out and a three eighths in or some, like, some goofy combination. Anyway. I had this cable, I unplugged it, I brought it. I have no clue where it is now. And, you know, Grayson, you might have it. Um, if you do, bring it to Buffalo with you. Uh, but if you don't have it, um, I tried to order a new one. And I, I need this special cord in order to patch people in on the phone. And without this special cord, uh, I can't patch them in. And so I ordered a new one. And guess what? That one didn't work. And <laughs> I, I suspect 
Now, you're talking to a former drummer here, right? So I just sat back and played the drums and other people worried about things like chords and microphones and mixers. This is not my world. Uh, anyway, I suspect that the chord I got was a stereo chord and what I really needed was a mono chord. And so I have now ordered a 499 mono chord. And that will be here hopefully by the end of this week, which means that next week we can resume guests, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in the meantime, you're stuck with me. And uh, I've got a couple things to chat about this week, but um, it's kind of funny because I have had some of you say, God, Chuck, I just hate it when you do podcasts on yourself. Why don't you have a guest? And then I've had other people say, you know, I, I appreciate the guests and they're very nice, but I miss the old podcast where you would do them all on your own. Um, you're going to get a little bit of the, the old school flavor this week. Uh, a couple little notes before we get too deep into this. It is kind of late at night on Wednesday night. And I came into the office late because sometimes when I record here during the day, uh, especially lately, it's been really loud. Um, you know, I've got a nice little like corner of the office here that I've soundproofed and it, it helps a lot with the sound. I also pay, <laughs> this is another part of upping our game. I've got an editor that I actually pay now uh, per episode. And um, so when I finish them out, I ship them out to him and he kind of cleans them up, which makes a huge difference in terms of the sound quality and getting rid of all my kind of Minnesota-isms all the likes and the ums and the uh, the awkward pauses, <laughs> all that stuff goes away when he does his magic on them. So, you know, if you ever hear people doing a radio show uh, or a podcast and it sounds really good and all that is gone, it's probably not that they're great speakers. It's probably that they got a pretty darn good editor. So shout out to Chris. I doubt he's listening because this one, because it's so late Wednesday, is not going to get sent to the editor. So you're going to get this one raw. You're also, unfortunately, going to get, if you strain your ears a little bit, the background music from the office downstairs. Uh, I don't know who these knuckleheads are, and I've gone down there and chatted with them and asked them, will you please shut your music off when you leave at night? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and then they never do. Uh, I come into the office late at night a lot, and I work here late pretty often. And, you know, sometimes... Uh, there won't be music, but I'd say more times than not, they've got the music going. And, you know, every small town has a, a handful of radio stations. You've got the country radio station. You've got the oldies radio station. Um, you've got the kind of hip hop radio station. And then I think every small town has the one like easy listening islands in the stream kind of radio station. For some reason, the people downstairs uh, feel like, you know, the islands in the stream, easy listening station is the one that they need to have full blast uh, for me to listen to when I come in late at night. And it drives me crazy. Uh, so there's nothing I can do. Um, I can't stop it. <laughs> I can't break into their office. I suppose I could, but I can't even like, I don't, I, I'm not even sure who it is. Uh, it, I suspect that it isn't who I think it is and who I've talked to because I, I do think they shut their radio off. I don't know where this music is coming from, but if you hear that in the background, that's what it is, and I do uh, apologize. Um, 
let's chat about CNU real quick before we get to the meat of what we're going to talk about. Um, in, did you hear that? I just said, um, in, uh, that won't get edited out in prior podcasts. It would. So, um, <laughs> I'm going to try to speak without doing too many of those, uh, little quirks here. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've now become used to a higher standard of podcast as I believe you probably have as well. And so this just isn't, you know, this just isn't quality, Chuck. Uh, CNU. First week of June, we've got CNU starting in Buffalo. CNU 22. And I, I hope a lot of you are going. I hope all of you are going. Uh, CNU is a blast. I, I love it. Uh, I love the ability to engage with some of the people that I find to be the most intellectually stimulating people that I'm, I'm ever around. And CNU itself is just a, a really fun time, a really stimulating event. There are a number of things that Strong Towns is doing and involved in, or I am doing and involved in, that I want to bring up to you that are kind of part of the programming, but I want to highlight them for you if you're going to be there uh, so that you know about them. And if you're not, you know, if you're on the fence about going, uh, maybe this will convince you that it's going to be worth your time. Uh, before the CNU kicks off on Tuesday afternoon, we are doing a kind of abbreviated version of the Strong Towns Boot Camp. Uh, you're going to have Joe Minicosi of Urban Three, Mike Lydon of the Streets Plan Collaborative, and then myself with Strong Towns uh, doing kind of an integrated. Uh, set of presentations talking about the current condition of cities financially, how we can communicate uh, things differently, and then how we can go about uh, identifying a, a different set of projects, a different approach to project development so that we can start building strong cities, towns, and neighborhoods once again. I am so excited about this. I, I can't even describe how excited I am to be collaborating with Mike and Joe. Uh, if I were to step back and just list like the people who I professionally idolize and think are doing is extraordinary work, uh, in the top five would be Joe and Mike. And when they agreed to do the Memphis boot camp with me and then to come along and do this one in Buffalo and hopefully do many, many more across the country. Uh, I just have been in a state of euphoria ever since. So if you can make it to this, uh, you can go to our member site, strongtowns.us, and sign up for this. Uh, there is a cost, $65. We are trying to kind of defray the cost of renting the room and uh, some of the refreshments and stuff that we've got to have when we pull off something like this. So uh, there is a small cost. Um, go and get signed up. It's on Tuesday. You don't have to be signed up for CNU to go to this. So if you are in the upstate New York region or Toronto or, you know, somewhere near, uh, head on over and go to the boot camp. We would love to have you there. And I'll tell you what, you will get a lot out of it. I got a lot out of it. Uh, just, you know, being there with Joe and Mike and listening to those two guys. So that is on Tuesday, starting at one o'clock, uh, the day before CNU starts. CNU kicks off on Wednesday. I want to highlight a couple things. On Thursday at noon at the Lafayette Hotel, we are going to do a Strong Towns podcast. I, I, I can't remember how they book this exactly on the, uh, on the sheet, but it's, it's on the official program schedule. It's pretty cool. Uh, we're going to be doing, I think they called it a roundtable kind of discussion 
uh, the way I think we're going to wind up setting it up, I asked Grayson Johnson to come and take part in it with me. I, I just love, uh, I, I love her insights and I love being able to share uh, the room with her. Uh, this is a really great compliment to the, the, the stuff that I'm doing. And so Grayson and I will be there together, uh, essentially having a conversation with whoever is there. I, I don't know how many people will show up. Maybe it'll just be the two of us in case we'll chat. And if there are more people, if there is more people there, we will take questions and we'll have a conversation. And, you know, it's basically going to be a public recording of a Strong Towns podcast there at the Lafayette Hotel at noon. It's going to be fun. So plan to be there. That'd be really cool. On Friday, I'm actually in a session with uh, Dan Bartman, Russ Preston, and Tommy Pacello talking about lean urbanism. Uh, it's actually the last session of the day. Uh, there's a series of sessions there, but but ours is one of those at the end on Friday. And if you're still there on Friday and you're hanging around and you're not ready to drop over yet, uh, swing by our session. Uh, I know it will be really good. Dan is a really sharp guy. Russ, one of the most brilliant architects I know and just always has great stuff. And then, of course, Tommy Pacello is a 21st century revolutionary kind of leader. And I know if he's listening to this, he is probably blushing at that because being a 21st century revolutionary kind of leader, he is a modest guy. But um, this is someone I would follow. This is someone I, I think is really an inspiring person. And I'm really interested myself to hear what he has to say about Lean urbanism, especially he is kind of at the epicenter, I think, of the best stuff going on right now in Memphis. And he's right in the middle of it. So this is going to be a really good session. If you get a chance, uh, come to it. Uh, it's the last one. I want to say it's like 5 o'clock or 5.15 on Friday. Friday evening, things are going to get a little bit interesting. After our session is done, the Next Gen group, of which I am intimately involved and about to get even more so just here in a moment, uh, is having a series of events Friday night Starting out with uh, Pekachika, um, a, uh, a, a series of presentations, and quite frankly, if you want to be part of it, if you've got something to say, uh, they will squeeze you in. They've got two hours set aside for this. Uh, it's 20 slides, 20 seconds each slide. Show up, share your topic. Uh, if you don't have anything, come and show up and watch. These are actually some of my favorite sessions in the entire Congress. And, you know, every now and then you get a clunker, but I tell you what, more often than not, and far more often than not, especially at CNU, these are great presentations. I mean, these are some smart people with some great ideas who know how to present. Uh, that will also be at the Lafayette Hotel uh, starting at 6 p.m. Check that out. When that is done, uh, NextGen is planning to host, like we did last year, uh, some debates. They've got it listed here on the program, three debates, six debaters, I'm not part of this. And, you know, last year we did the American Idol mashup with the Oxford debates. I have no idea what they're doing here, but they've got two hours set aside for a debate. Um, I know it will be good uh, because Nate Hood is putting it together and Nate has got a, a fun mind for this kind of stuff. Um, I've heard some inkling of who is going to be in these debates. And if it's who I think it's going to be, uh, this is going to be a really, really fun time. So make sure you show up. And then at the end of the night, uh, 10 o'clock, we're going to have the Next Gen Late Show. And yes, 
this is where yours truly is going to make a complete ass out of himself. So if you uh, want to be there for my uh, Waterloo, my um, <laughs> my uh, instance of, of utter failure as a you know imitation talk show host, show up at 10 o'clock at the Lafayette Hotel. I'm going to be doing a talk show. We we've actually are going to do it. Uh, as a talk show, I have uh, a monologue I put together. Yes, I am an engineer. Uh, no, I am not funny. Um, but uh, we're going to try to have some fun. Uh, if nothing else, you can laugh at my ineptitude. Uh, that will be at 10 o'clock. Uh, we've got a monologue. We've got some guests. Uh, I'm not going to reveal who those guests are just yet. Uh, we'll kind of save it for that night. Got some skits, got some fun stuff. There's a rumor that there might be a band, although I'm not sure. That seems a little far-fetched to me, but if there is, we'll work them in. If not, uh, we'll make do. Uh, this is just going to be a fun way to cap an evening. The Next Gen Late Show. Show up for it Friday night, 10 p.m., and uh, please don't bring any rotten fruit. Um, I'm already going to be <laughs> a total wreck uh, trying to pull this one off. So come and, and, and maybe support me with some, you know, uh, if you can bring like a canned laughter machine or something and just help me out, that would be really great. Uh, and then finally, the, the only other thing I wanted to highlight, uh, because, you know, we've got to do serious stuff here too, right? Um, just kidding. Uh, is on Saturday, we're having a kickball tournament. Uh, the Next Gen is hosting this as well. Uh, I am the captain of one of the kickball teams. You can go to the Next Gen website, which, God, I knew you were going to ask what that is. Uh, I have no clue. Actually, I, I I did. I used to know what it was, and now I don't know. If you just go type CNU Next Gen, N-E-X-T-G-E-N in Google, you will get it. Um, you can actually type Strong Town CNU, and you will get uh, the the thing the link that Nate Hood put up last week. It's got all the information on where to register. But get signed up to be on a kickball team. Uh, you can request to be on the Strong Towns team. If you're a Strong Towns listener, do that. Uh, I'd love to have you on my team. And, uh, you know, we're, we're probably going to have some Mountain Dew Kickstart as our official sponsor. And uh, I'm still working on that. And if not, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to have to do something to intimidate the other teams. And I, I've got to come up with what that is yet. I'll probably do that <laughs> after I do my bomb with the, uh, the late show Friday evening. So uh, CNU... I'm making it sound like a big party. Uh, there's some great speakers planned for CNU. The plenaries look really good. Sessions look good. Uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on around the margins, as always. And as my friend John Anderson likes to say, you know, if you get out of the lobby, uh, you might not be doing it correctly. <laughs> there's a lot that goes on, just people rubbing shoulders and chatting about things. Uh, if this is your first CNU or if you're a veteran of CNU, I think one of the things to know about going there is that no conversation is off limits. No person is off limits. Uh, go up and talk to anybody you want about anything you want. Uh, butt your nose into anything that's going on uh, and just be present. It is a fun place. Uh, it, it, it is a really, really liberating place for people that uh, want to know more, want to learn and want to get involved. And so... I hope as many of our listeners are there as possible. We're 20 minutes into this thing, and I haven't really talked about anything yet. I apologize for that. Um, 
let me uh, get to the the one topic that I wanted to kind of mess around with today, and that is uh, transit. Uh, we don't talk a lot about transit at Strong Towns, and, and a lot of that is because, you know, we. <laughs> how do I say this? I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't take transit. I don't really have an option to take transit. In fact, uh, I've probably ridden a non-yellow bus. Uh, you know, I rode school bus obviously when I was a kid, but ridden like a real bus, like a transit bus. Uh, maybe like three times in my life. Um, it just hasn't happened to me. I, I've ridden the light rail here in Minnesota a couple times. I, you know, I've been to Europe and written on the metro and the tube and what have you. Uh, yeah, I've done a, I've done a little bit of, of transit in that sense, but I'm not like transit is not something that motivates me the way that it motivates a, a lot of people. And I, I have tended to look at transit uh, in the way that I really look at everything in terms of return on investment, in terms of like smart things to do. Now, this being said, I'm a huge advocate for transit. I mean, I, I think that transit is the answer to a lot of our problems. I don't think it is the answer, but I think it's one of a series of strategies that we need to get serious about and we need to really start uh, taking a different approach to. Um, that being said, I run afoul of transit advocates when I open my mouth about transit because a lot of them, and I'll paraphrase someone who emailed me uh, earlier this year when I wrote a series on the blog about transportation funding, uh, the email that I got was, come on, Chuck, I just want to train. Um, there's a certain amount of desire that comes with transit that is not always rational. And in that context, you know, we've kind of struggled here, I think, to frame in a uh, in a dispassionate way or in a way that I think people could grasp and understand and support uh, what we think about transit and what what I think really should be a strong town's approach to transit. A couple of weeks ago, I was in San Antonio speaking at a conference, and and the conference was webcast. And of course, Jim Kuman, uh, our executive director, my boss, uh, was listening. And uh, as soon as I got done answering a question about transit, he sent me a text. And this was a really nice text to get too. While you're sitting up on stage, it basically said that was the best answer to the transit question that you've ever given. That right there, we should just, you know, print off and send around. That's it. So what I wanted to do here is I wanted to play that answer. Uh, the question was, you know, there were three other people that spoke in front of me, so I don't even remember what the question was. It was basically, you know, what do you think about transit? Um, I'm going to play for you my answer, and then we're going to delve a, a little bit deeper into it in the time that we've got left. And I will try not to make too big of a, you know, make too many enemies of you who just want to train. Here's uh, me. God, that sounds kind of pretentious, doesn't it? I'm, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to quit the podcast of me talking and go to an excerpt of me talking. Um, I feel like Rush Limbaugh or something. Um, okay. Here is me talking <laughs> in San Antonio uh, earlier this month. Um, 
I think that there's a couple things on transit that are really, really important. And, and I get the transit people upset with me sometimes because of the same, you know, reaction to build it and they will come transit as I have to build it and they will come other things. There's, there's a sense today amongst many that transit is the, the solution, the magic bullet. And I'm not suggesting you were suggesting that. But I, I want to make it clear that, especially here in San Antonio, um, we need to walk before we run. And literally, I'm saying we need to be able to walk. Uh, I was out, you know, walking your streets and you've got bus stops all over the place that you can't even get to, right? Like, how do you get to the bus stop? What sense is there in putting in, you know, an expensive, expansive system when like literally you just need to paint some crosswalks and fix some curb radiuses and narrow up some lanes? I mean, we're talking about pennies instead of, you know, you know tens of dollars uh, in comparison of what like needs to be done to get that first step. Uh, it's really hard to impose a transit culture on a community that doesn't have respect for you know the current systems that it has or you know a biking culture or a walking culture to me there's a certain progression that we need to start with the other thing that i think is really important and this goes to how we finance transit and how we make it viable over time if you want transit you have to have a place remember we talked about strodes during between a road and a street Great transit connects productive places. It functions like a road. It gets you from one productive place to another productive place. So if you want functional, viable transit, build productive places and connect them. That's what like a really viable transit system looks like. A lot of what we do today for transit is we take the mentality of the highway engineer and transfer it over to the transit where we say, well, we're gonna serve a corridor. And what you wind up with is the same low productivity development pattern that doesn't pay for itself. And when we do it with transit, we actually do some type of accounting that we don't do with highways. Build productive places and connect them. So if you're an advocate for transit, by default, you're an advocate for great productive places. And if you put your energies there, the transit will follow. Let me also say that uh, Ah. This is not, thank you. <laughs> I'm not running for office or anything. So. <laughs> All right, there we go. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, thank you, Jim. Uh, I, I don't think that was okay. Uh, let's delve into a couple of things there. And I actually wrote down kind of three takeaways from that little talk that I gave that I, I do think are worthy of additional discussion or worthy of, of keeping in the forefront of our conversation here about transit. Um, the first one is that we need to walk before we run. And I, I know that that's a saying that is often applied flippantly to a lot of things, but I am, you know, really, really passionate about this particular thing. The, the lean startup model the idea that you know what is the what is the smallest viable step we can take towards success is something that we need as local governments as local advocates as strong towns advocates to just have as part of our core essence um, you know we in this country have had so much wealth and so much affluence that it's been possible for decades now to just dream something and then find the money to make it happen, right? And there, there's something really cool about that. I mean, we dream big and we, we do big things. 
but the problem is, is that we have done a lot of big things that financially are not very productive. And now we're sitting here with this development pattern 60 odd years in uh, that has enormous liabilities and not nearly enough revenue to maintain everything. Uh, It's time we start thinking small and not thinking small as the end result, but thinking kind of strategically about how we take smaller steps to build to the ultimate destination we're trying to get to. That is really a tough message for transit advocates to take. And I understand that. And and I want to start off by being sympathetic to the fact that that is a really difficult message for transit advocates. And, and, And it's particularly kind of bitter because we used to have great transit in this country. I mean, we used to have phenomenal transit in this country. And with some really big thinking, uh, we dismantled it and we built this not only system of interstates, which really the core interstate system is a fantastic system. Uh, But we took what was a fantastic system and we doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on it and just built miles and miles and miles of stuff uh, that is not very productive. We then took our cities and re-engineered them to be uh, auto-centric style of places. And as Andrew Price pointed out actually today on the blog, uh, we not only re-engineered the, uh, the, as the engineers call it, the public right-of-way, uh, as people used to call it, you know, public space, uh, re-engineered it for the automobile, but we've just done everything we can to, from a zoning standpoint, uh, from a financing standpoint and what have you, to create places that were dominated by the automobile. I get the notion that if you are an advocate for transit, you're looking at the system going, when's our day in the sun? You know, we're spending billions and billions on highways. Can't we just give a little bit of love to transit? Come on, Chuck. Uh, You know, why can't we just get our fair share? And I get that. I get that temptation. Here's a problem. We don't do it well at all. Transit in this country is done, you know, with with a very few exceptions, is done really, really crappy. And I, I'm going to pick on uh, Salt Lake City here for a second, because Salt Lake City was held out as this place that, you know, it's a Western community, kind of conservative. Now all of a sudden is embracing transit, and they've got this great transit line that they put in now that runs from the airport to the downtown. And isn't it wonderful? And yes, when I was out there for CNU, I wrote it, and yeah, it was wonderful. It was great. But here's a problem. In between uh, the downtown, which is actually a productive transit stop, and the airport, which is also a productive transit stop, how many just stupid transit stops were there in between? Places where, you know, for whatever reason, and I'm imagining it's a lot like what we see here in Minnesota, where, you know, to get all the different political entities on board, everybody's got to have their own little stop. Uh, we, we put all these stops in along the way you had stops at, you know, uh, along Strodes, you had stops, uh, in, I want to say it was like a parking lot of a Wendy's or something like that. I mean, you, you just, all these like really dumb stops that not only, uh, don't serve any productive kind of land use pattern, any type of investment. I mean, maybe this is a build it and they will come kind of thing, but it certainly is not there. We're certainly not connecting a productive place. 
But beyond that, it just slowed down the damn line. I mean, I'm trying to get from the airport to the downtown and I've got to stop at all these places where nobody getting on and off or very few people getting on and off. What we have done, and I, I kind of said this in the talk, is that we've taken the mentality and the approach of the highway engineer and we've applied that to transit. And so what we wind up with is transit systems that work as poorly as our highways work. Here in Minnesota, we did the North Star Line. The North Star Line uh, runs from Target Field in downtown Minneapolis up to, theoretically, the city of St. Cloud, which was supposed to be the northern terminus point. The city of St. Cloud is either the third or fourth largest city in the state. You've got Minneapolis, you've got St. Paul, and then you've got Duluth, and then I think it's St. Cloud. Uh, St. Cloud is a, you know, a fairly decent sized city, uh, should be the terminus point of the North Star Corridor. But when they built the North Star Corridor, they only had money to go so far up. Why? Because every little tiny crappy little town along the way had to have it stop so that we could get the political coalition together to get this thing funded. You've got stops in cornfields. You've got stops in parking lots. You've got stops. You, one of the stops on the North Star Line is in the back of a Target store. It's just disgusting where these stops are. And then the last stop is, like I said, in a cornfield uh, north of this small town. They didn't even put it in the downtown where there's actually people and stuff going on. They put it in a cornfield because like a good you know, highway engineering project, the idea is, is that we'll create all kinds of jobs when we build it. And then after we build it, there'll be all this room to grow and expand and that will create jobs too. And isn't growth wonderful? And what do you wind up with? You wind up with a transit system that's not viable because right now they're having all kinds of problems with ridership on the North Star. They're having all kinds of problems making it work. And the idea of finishing the line and actually expanding it uh, north up to St. Cloud is just not feasible. And quite frankly, even if they did, the you know, and, and, and I know there's people who love this and think it's wonderful and think it's great. Uh, you're delusional. Because even if they did it, riding this line is not fast. I mean, it's quicker to drive in for the most part because you've got to do all these stops along the way. What should have been done with the North Star Line? The same thing that should have been done with the line in, in, in San Antonio or uh, in Salt Lake City. And the same that should be done with all transit lines. They should start at a productive place and they should end at a productive place. And the only time they should stop in between should be where you've got a productive place. And what do I mean by a productive place? I mean a place that is actually like has people and is financially viable and has a, a, some sense of people walking and biking and being outside of their car. So that transit actually has like, an, like a captive audience, right? This is what I mean by walk before we run. Before we run, before we start connecting, uh, you know, transit and running things all over the place, um, we need to actually build a place. We need to actually start doing things like, okay, how do I, how do I walk like from here to across the street? And, and I'm going to take a little side tangent here in my hometown here. And I, I got in trouble a couple of weeks ago when I mentioned uh, my hometown or Grace and I did a whole podcast on my hometown and uh, someone, I won't mention him, although I know now that he listens and I didn't, wasn't sure that he did or not. It's kind of funny to me. Um, got mad at me about the way that uh, I talked about uh, him on the podcast because I didn't mention him, not by name, but by 
uh, position here in the city. Uh, one of the things that we have a, a group advocating here for in my hometown is a river walk. Not a river walk like the San Antonio River Walk. Uh, that would be really great. Um, no, there's no development along with this. Uh, th what this is, we have the Mississippi River run through town, and the idea of the river walk is that it will be a recreational trail along the river. Uh, a nice place for people to walk, a nice amenity, essentially something that would be uh, rather park-like with uh, you know nice views and, and, and nice ambiance and the ability to walk along the river. I, I know where this is coming from because there's this kind of, and I'm going to call it fad in the planning profession. There's this notion uh, amongst planners that what's missing in our cities is uh, kind of these kind of amenities, these kind of natural green space kind of amenities. And if we could just have more of them, uh, this is almost like a, a bastardized version of City Beautiful. You know, if we could just have more of these kind of cute things, it would make up for the fact that the rest of the city is despotic and, and not at all walkable. I find this to be not only annoying, but a borderline offensive. Uh, the, the idea that we would be so wrapped up in spending $1.2 million and, and trying to get the grant funding and trying to having all these meetings to get people together and talk about how do we, you know, get the money to put in this river walk and how great it would be. And quite frankly, all these like community elitists thinking that this is like the great thing that we need to do when quite frankly, the, the damn poor people that live in the neighborhood right next to my office can't safely walk two blocks to the grocery store. You know, I'm sitting here right now, like three blocks from the downtown. There's no way to get there. There's literally no way to walk there without walking about 14 blocks out of my way. And on roads that are clearly not designed for anyone to walk on and not safe at all. Uh, you can live three blocks. You can live by Gregory Park, which used to be Gregory Square, the town square north of Brainerd, which is three blocks from the core downtown. And you can't walk there. You can. Now you can go and you can walk, uh, you know, you can, you can technically get there. Uh, you can go across, you know, the, the pair of just nasty, wide, four-lane strodes. Uh, you may have to walk a couple extra blocks to get to the light so you can get a signalized turn so the cars will actually stop. And when you get there, you're going to have to walk across about 60 feet of asphalt, completely unprotected. You can do all that. Um, but you know, you're not going to see a lot of five-year-olds out doing that. And you're not going to see a lot of 80-year-olds out doing that. And you know, kind of this, I think the design standard for a walkable place is it's the 880. Uh, if you've ever heard, and I'm, I'm embarrassed now that I can't think of the guy cause I just met him like three weeks ago and he was so cool. In fact, I'm going to now, as I'm typing here, type in 880 cause I'm going to figure out who this guy is. 880 cities. Um, come on now. Gil Penalosa, that's who it was, Gil. Gosh, this guy was awesome. I heard him speak up in uh, Perry Sound, Ontario, and he was so good. Uh, he's going to be at CNU too, by the way. His whole thing is 880. We need to design cities so people that are 8 feel comfortable in them and people who are 80 feel comfortable in them. And in my city, you, you're, if you're 8 or you're 80, you're not going to be walking any of these places. They're freaky, they're scary. Yet, what are we obsessed about? We're obsessed about a river walk. I'm telling you, it would take pennies on the dollar of what a river walk is going to cost for us to make this city a, 
50 times more walkable and bikeable than it is today. It would just be easy to do. And I, I'm saying right now we're having so much problem getting people to support a river walk and get on board with spending over a million dollars on a river walk. I mean, it would never get done locally. The only way we're going to do this is if we can get some grant from the state, some program that will come in and build this thing for us. This would be easy to do and people would be jumping up and down to pay for it if we actually had a walking and biking culture. If we actually had people who walked and biked places and to get people to walk and bike places is not going to be that hard. Just tiny little investments to get there. So let me bring this back to transit. We're trying so hard to get the federal government to fund transit and to get these coalitions together to build these monster transit lines and to make these huge investments. And, and, and you know, ironically, we drop 10 times that on highways all the time, right? But we're trying to make this huge culture shift and the reality is, is that we need to walk before we run. We need people who are actually out there walking and biking and using places and, and creating demand for transit on the ground. Let me talk a little bit then about how we phase in transit. Because, you know, so many times we want to start with the rail project. We want to go right to like the end condition. And I like to point out to people, you know, I, I don't know the history of like the subway in New York. And I don't know the history of the tube in London or, you know, the metro in Paris. Uh, I've ridden all of them. They're all fantastic pieces of infrastructure. The, the, the metro line in D.C. I just is just amazing. But I can guarantee you that when Lafont La was laying out Washington, D.C., uh, you know, and when Jefferson was kind of looking over this plan, they weren't putting in subway lines. I mean, they, they weren't looking at this saying, well, here's where the subway line will go. You know, someone's going to email me and say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the original plan from 1780 where they had subway lines. Maybe they did. I don't know. It just doesn't seem very likely to me. What seems far more likely to me, because you see this in, in other transit lines and other places where it has kind of evolved like this before our big centralized top-down approach, uh, what would happen is that places would start with the very lowest level of transit. And I'm going to sound crazy here, but I'm quoting one of the most brilliant people I know, Andres Duany. Uh, the base level of transit is the jitney. It's, you know, the person uh, with the cart and you hop in and they bring you from one place to the other. It's the little, you know, horse with the carriage. It's the bike uh, with the seat for two people in front. You know, it's, it's those little kind of, uh, things uh, to allow you to get quickly from one place to another, the very base level of transit. Taxis would, would fall into this in a sense. Um, you know, and, and these are systems that are scaled to very low populations, very low density, and, and really kind of the infancy of getting a place started. We've talked on this podcast many times about incremental growth patterns and how we need to grow our cities incrementally over time. And what we really need to do more than anything else right now in terms of land use and zoning is to allow by right the next increment of growth throughout every neighborhood. And when we do that, kind of see where those productive places are. Where are the single family homes going to now get accessory apartments and, and you know, 
than outbuildings. Where are the single family homes with accessory apartments going to turn into duplexes and triplexes? Where are the places with duplexes and triplexes that are going to go into row houses and two and three story, you know, three story, four story kind of buildings? This is the next increment of growth in our places. And when we're talking about transit, what we're really talking about are taking the places where people are investing, where things are productive that are happening and start to connect them. And if we don't get so hung up on needing the rail line, uh, we can actually start talking about how we make people's lives better by connecting places with what we have now, a jitney, a shuttle bus. You know, when, 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 when things get to the point where they're actually like things are happening, uh, why don't we just use a, a shuttle? You know, why don't we have a van with nine, with 12 seats? You know, there's a van here in town that drives down to the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport. It's two and a half hours away. They go down like eight times a day. There's, you know, a bunch of different vans that just go back and forth. Heck, you've got the, you know, the college here in town. You've got the downtown. Uh, why there isn't a shuttle bus that goes back and forth between those two, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That seems like the logical first step of transit. We've got the dial-a-ride here. Uh, I actually saw it, you know, like 10 miles out of town the other day. Uh, you call up and it's basically like a subsidized glorified taxi that will come out and pick you up in this big, inefficient, you know, gas-guzzling bus uh, and drive you where you need to go. Uh, why don't we have, you know, a modest amount of fixed route services between our core destinations? I, I don't know. I don't know this. But to me, that's like the most logical thing. Once you get the van going back and forth, now you can turn the dial-a-ride into the shuttle bus, right? And have a more formal, like, limited bus. And then you can go to a full bus. And then you can go to bus rapid transit. And then you can go to light rail. Or you can go to a streetcar. Uh, and ultimately, you're Manhattan and you put in the subway, right? Because the land all of a sudden becomes so stinking valuable that you look around and go, you know what? The cost of that uh, transit line, which just seemed huge back when we were a bunch of single family homes kind of getting started around a little node here, uh, now is not a big deal because we've got billions and billions of dollars of investment right here. What we're talking about is having the public investment and the private investment be proportional. And the private investment actually lead the public investment so that we're not sitting there uh, like they are in Salt Lake City today, like we are here in Minnesota with the North Star Line, and like transit systems all over the world, all, you know, all over North America are sitting uh, with stops where there's nothing going on. And I know the governments in those places and the planners will stand up and say, well, Chuck, we've got all these plans uh, for things to happen. You know, we've got the zoning right and uh, we've got the land use controls in place and we're projecting all kinds of growth. Fantastic. Great. I would rather have seen that money spent serving people in places that they already are, where they're already struggling, where they're already trying to make ends meet. And that might be less sexy. That might be a jitney, <laughs> you know, or a shuttle bus where, gosh, Chuck, I just want a train. I just want to ride a nice train. I get it. I get it. I want to help people. I want to make our city strong. I want to make them work. And it's a different, it's a different approach. It's a different mindset. Um, I kind of skipped through the second point that I wrote down there, which was you can't impose a, a transit culture on people. And, I, you know, I, I put as a sub note there, you know, we need this progression. And that's what we've been talking about here. I, I think so often we try to jump from and, and we, do, we do it with logic. You know, we say, well, 
we've spent so much money on highways, we should spend on transit. And more people need transit, you know, are asking for transit today than ever before. And, uh, you know, there, there's all these kind of reasons we come up with in our brains on why transit would be fantastic and why we need it. And I, I get those, but I, I think that the struggle that we're having is that, you know, even in the most aggressive of scenarios today, you're talking about, you know, in a, in a once you get outside of New York and DC, okay, uh, you get you go to Kansas City, right, where they put in the streetcar line, you know, the most, I mean, the most aggressive mode shifts are talking about, you know, 7%, 8%, uh, ridership being on transit. The most aggressive ones I've ever seen are like 12, 15%, right? You're still talking about a culture that drives predominantly. And so what we're trying to do by, you know, essentially going mano a mano with these mega projects on the highway side is to say, um, you know, we want the 85% or the 80% uh, to pay for the transit line uh, and, and, you know, you may have every logical, practical reason you and I may be able to sit down and come to an agreement on why that makes sense. You know, we might even agree that it should be 80, 20 transit, you know, and 20% highways. I mean, I, you could convince me of that, right? But from a practical political standpoint, from a, from a, from a prudent standpoint, we're not going to win that argument. Because we don't have a culture that is embracing transit. Yes, there are people in our culture who need transit. There are people in our culture who are embracing transit. But the transit that we're building is not for those people, right? The transit that we're building is largely not serving that group. If we want to serve that group, it's a completely different approach than what we're doing now. Let me talk about how we get there. And this comes to the third point that I made in the talk. And that is if, if you want transit, you need to build a place. I think that going to Washington, D.C. and arguing with Congress to, you know, have the next round of Tiger projects and the next round of Safe Routes to School, um, the next round of, you know, big kind of transit uh, giveaway money, I think this is the absolute wrong approach. And I do think that with, you know, with this approach, because you're basically, again, taking a country that is, you know, 95% automobile drivers today, telling them that, you know, a sizable percentage of you are going to shift modes. Um, but, you know, at a high watermark, we're going to try to get to 10, 15, maybe 20% of people taking transit. I don't think this is good enough. Uh, and, and I don't think this is approach, you know, I, I don't, and, and not to, um, <laughs> I was going to say, not to paraphrase a great man on a subject not worthy, but you know this isn't going to get us to the promised land, right? If you're a transit advocate, a 20% mode shift may sound like euphoria from where you're at today, but that's not the promised land, right? That's not where you're trying to get to. You're trying to get to actually a culture, a system, a place that, that prioritizes transit over other modes, right? That's what we're trying to get to. You're not going to get there going to Washington, D.C. You're not going to get there, you know, fighting uh, with, and, and quite frankly, you can blame Tea Party people. Uh, I actually am sympathetic to a lot of what the Tea Party has to say on this issue. You can blame Tea Party people, but, you know, look around at the people who are supporting transit, and they're not talking anything that would be like the promised land, right? 
they're talking about throwing some money in here at this and throwing some money in here at that and putting 20 times that amount into the crappy highway system and expanding it and building on it the exact way that we are today. That's what needs to end. And if, if you're a transit advocate, to me, you're an advocate for place because the way we pay for transit and quite frankly, the way we should be paying for transportation in general is by making our places more valuable. Right now, when we build a highway, uh, we take collective resources. Uh, in, in the series I wrote earlier this year, I talked about this as a slush fund. And a bunch of you got mad at me and said slush fund is a right-wing term uh, and it's a pejorative term and you're using it uh, to be pejorative. And it, it's kind of funny because, you know, it might be a right-wing term. It might be a pejorative term, but it's also an accurate term. I mean, when we, <laughs> when we all put our gas tax dollars into a big pot and then politicians in Washington, D.C. decide who gets what back, not based on what we put in or what our needs are or what our demands are or what the highest returning projects are, but just plain, you know, political uh, back and forth. That's a slush fund, okay? That's a slush fund. For you kind of sensitive of ears, you know, uh, you, you, you kind of, people who are, you know, politically finely tuned, which I am not, uh, I will try to refrain from using the term slush fund. Uh, just so that you hang with me here in this conversation. But no, that is a slush fund, all right? You're talking about a slush fund. So we take you know, communal resources uh, and we spend them on these projects at the local level. Uh, and you know, we build a highway, right? Then what happens? The local governments, and in conjunction with the state governments that want the same thing, uh, and you know, the DOTs, which are happy to facilitate this, uh, the engineers that are happy to build this, mine that investment, they essentially steal from or skim from that investment in the highway to fund quick and easy growth at the local level. Now, let me unpack that a little bit and explain that because some of you may be a little bit lost when I say mine or skim. The value of a highway is a connection between two places. You've got, uh, you know, let me, let me just say you've got Minneapolis and you've got St. Paul. Uh, or you've got, you know, Minneapolis and you've got St. Cloud. To use my, my Minnesota examples. And you've got a high-speed connection between the two, right? Uh, you've got a lot of stuff going on in St. Cloud. It's, uh, you know, a regional center. You've got courthouses there. You've got businesses there. You've got all kinds of economic economic activity there and you've got people going back and forth you know between there and the, the the major city in minnesota here minneapolis right they're going back and forth back and forth and we put this huge sum of money into building this interstate highway so that they can get back and forth between those two places then what do we do all along the way all the cities along the way tap into that tap into that capacity and they take the money that we communally spent I didn't use the word slush fund there. They took the money that we communally spent to build this great economic resource, this high-speed connection between these two places. And they steal that value for their own short-term gain. They slow down the highway. They create congestion. Uh, and, and they degrade the enormous amount of money that we put into that highway investment. 
And in return, at very little cost to them, they get the Walmart, the Quickie Mart, the gas station, the pet stop, uh, you know, oh, 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 the, the suburban housing subdivision. And they get a, a generation of an illusion of prosperity by robbing that communal wealth that has been put into the highway. We need to be pointing that out. And if you're a transit advocate, you've got to be an advocate for roads and streets. You've got to be an advocate. uh, You've got to be advocating against strodes and against taking our roads and making them into strodes and against taking our streets and making them into strodes. You've got to be an advocate for building high-speed connections between places, great roads, and building platforms for creating wealth, great streets. When we take and build those roads and then we rob the capacity of them, for economic development purposes, uh, we're mining that investment. Y- you can't do that on a train, right? You can't do that on a train. And so as long as we kind of are trying to go toe-to-toe with the financing mechanisms of the highway with a train, you're going to lose every time because you can never create the amount of quick, cheap, and easy growth on a train that you can create on a highway because you can't have a frontage train. You can't have a drive-through train, right? It doesn't work. It's, you're not going to have a Walmart uh, next to a McDonald's, next to a Taco Bell, next to a gas station off of a train. It's not going to happen. Trains are connections. They're, you're going to have a node and another node. If we start building nodes and we say, you know what? We're not going to fund all this transportation infrastructure. I almost use a curse word there. I've used a couple of those in this podcast, haven't I? I'm sorry about that. Um, We're not going to fund all this stuff out of Washington, D.C. We're going to start funding it locally. Instead of shipping our money, uh, I was just going to use the slush fund word again. Instead of sending all of our money to be communally divvied up in Washington, D.C., we're going to keep that money locally uh, and we're going to use that uh, ourselves here locally based on our priorities. To me, I would be locally then advocating for using value capture as a way to fund transportation improvements. I would say, all right, if we're going to build that new interchange, uh, that cost is going to be recouped by the development appreciation around that interchange. And so uh, if we're going to spend $30 million, uh, we're going to have to buy up the land around it, have that developed, do whatever it takes to create $30 million worth of wealth in order to build that interchange. If we're going to put in a transit stop and that transit stop is going to cost us $30 million, uh, the same kind of deal. We're going to pay for that by the value capture, the value added around that stop and you know the tax base that is created from that. I, uh, I read once that when Napoleon wanted to build the Champs-Élysées, uh, his, his finance people went to him and said, you know, look, uh, here you, you want a place to march your army down. That's great. But, uh, we don't have the money to do this. You know, you spent all the money, uh, outfitting and feeding these troops and we just don't have the money. And someone came up with the idea that, you know what, we're just going to take this land. We're going to condemn essentially both sides, rip the whole thing down, uh, build this grand street. That's going to be worth like all this, you know, this is like the street to be, right? It's like the iconic street in Western civilization. We're going to build this and then we're going to sell the land on both sides back to people to develop 
and we're going to use the value that we created in that land, the, the, the new wealth, because this land is worth so much more now that it's adjacent to the Champ de Lisée, we're going to use that increment of wealth to finance the actual construction of the street. This is the way we used to build places all the time. This is the way the railroads were built across this country, through value capture. Go back and listen to the podcast we did earlier this year on value capture. This is the way we build places. And if we actually, in, in right now, we do this really perverse thing with transit where we try to make it pay for itself. Uh, you know, we say things like, uh, you know, you've got to, with your fares, uh, cover some of the debt service costs and some of the capital costs. This is insane. This is insane. We will, we, we will, if you are a transit advocate and I, as a, we, we as transit advocates, cause I am a transit advocate. If we are going to advocate for transit and we are going to do it in an auto based financing system, we will always be not the second fiddle, but the 10th fiddle. We will always be a, a tiny, tiny bit player in this system. We need to change the system of finance. I'm convinced it won't be done from DC. I'm convinced it will only be done at the local level where the money is real, where the finance is real, where the decisions are real. And when we do it, we're not going to do it based on, I'm going I'm to just use the word, we're not going to do it based on slush funds. All of you people who want to advocate for sales taxes and all these like hidden value added taxes and little wholesale taxes in order to get a little slush fund so you can build transit, you're, you are dooming us to a crappy transit system in perpetuity. The only way we're going to do this is by making it local and having it based on value capture. And I'm not talking about just transit. I'm talking about highways based on value capture. I'm talking about a transportation system based largely on the value created by it. That's a radically different system. And I, I see that and I get that it's a radically different system. But quite frankly, it's the way we've always built transportation prior to this suburban experiment, this highway experiment, this whole kind of slush fund approach. I'm out of time today, and I kind of feel like we're just getting started on the financing part. Uh, maybe we should come back and do another one of these, just me sometime, huh? Uh, I did a while back uh, this series about transportation funding and um, you know how we kind of switch from a system of building to a system of maintaining and what that means from a financial standpoint. Uh, we're working on this large report on mobility in the U.S., and some of that conversation is seeping into uh, that overall report. And so maybe we need to come back and have a conversation like this again, because I, I do, you know, I really believe strongly that transit is part of the solution to our cities. It's part of, it's one of the major tools in the toolbox, but the way we're doing transit now is not going to get us there. It's not going to get it done. We need to shift approaches and, and do things much, much differently. Thanks everybody. Um, <laughs> hope this was enjoyable for you. Uh, I'm getting a little tired here. I finished my kickstart about an hour ago. God, I shouldn't be drinking these that late at night. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you all take care. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you at CNU. Hope to see you at the boot camp. Uh, and even if I don't, um, take care and keep doing what you can to build a strong town.
So I, I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Sorry, what? There are lives at stake, Sherlock. Actual human life. Just, just so I know, do you care about that at all? Well, caring about them helps save them. Nope. Then I'll continue not to make that mistake. And you find that easy, do you? Yes, very. Is that news to you? No. No. I've disappointed you. It's good. It's a good deduction, yeah. Don't make people into heroes, John. Heroes don't exist, and if they did, I wouldn't be one of them.